Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Let's check in with our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also now available as an e-book, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com, and profwolf with two fs over on Twitter. Professor Wolf, welcome back. We've got Omicron, you know, staring down our throats. Uh, the county where I live talking about, hey, you know, make sure you've got a month's worth of groceries. <laughs> People get batting down the hatches. What is this going to do to the economy? What has Omicron or what has COVID done in the larger context of the economy? Are there historical parallels? People are making inflation parallels to the end of World War II, for example, you know, with supply chain disruptions and whatnot. Give us a, the big picture here and then also the, the micro view of what we can expect over the next few months. Well, uh, I'm going to try, Tom, but given the chaotic uh, flow of news that is often contradictory, it is uh, unusually difficult to say. Uh, here are some things, though, to keep in mind. Every um, effort now being made by all the players in a capitalist economy that risk bringing a bad reputation upon them are trying to avoid that outcome by blaming COVID. Some of that is reasonable. A large part of it is not. Uh, it's really important to understand that. First of all, we had an economic crash that began in February of 2020, long, well, not long, but before the COVID uh, pandemic hit us, which is usually dated March of that year, in other words, later. And so what we have here is a combination of both a public health disaster and an economic crash. The government of the United States and the people who run this country knew, should have known, probably did know that both of these likelihoods could happen and that they could happen together, which would be a kind of worst-case scenario. But instead of preparing for that, they acted like it couldn't or wouldn't happen, and so we were unprepared for both of these disasters and doubly unprepared for their handling uh, together. And it really traumatized the United States. I think everything from the massive number of people quitting their jobs to a strike wave uh, of the dimensions we haven't seen for decades in this country, uh, the divisions in our society, uh, all of these things are symptoms of an accumulation of problems. Having said all that, and having said that we seem remarkably incapacitated. We can't deal with these problems. We weren't ready for COVID. We haven't coped with COVID very well. I, I remind everyone, we are four and a half percent of the world's population in this country, and we have over 16 percent of the world's deaths. That is a lamentable failure. Uh, and my fear is that we're going to have a 2022 in which this Omicron uh, item is going to bring everyone back to a horrible reconfrontation with the way it was for the last two years. 
every effort will be made by our politically dysfunctional system uh, to gain some sort of advantage, whether it is uh, being against vaccine mandates or it's being against build back better solutions or it will be the excuse we don't need to do something because there's an inflation. I mean, when you look at the scale of the problems that this society has, now worsened by the inflation, now worsened by the supply chain disruptions, and by the way, those two things are literally causes of one another, uh, you really have to wonder uh, how the United States is going to ever get through uh, a level of dysfunction combined with these threats to it. And, and one last point that has to be said. We did not share with the rest of the world the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines that were heavily paid for by the government in advance, as well as promising to buy and pay for the vaccination of the United States' population. But by limiting to that, not sharing that with the rest of the world, not permitting other countries to produce by giving them the formulas, you have allowed huge portions of the world to go unvaccinated and therefore to be a place where new mutations such as the Omicron we're now facing can develop. And nothing is being done to basically alter this picture, which means that the frightening notion that we are at, still at the beginning of a sequence of these disasters uh, makes a certain amount of sense. But it, it's a level of dysfunction, if I can conclude uh, by answering your question of historical parallels. Yeah, I think there are. And the biggest one that we ought to be thinking about is that the feudal system of Europe never recovered from the pandemic called the Black death or the, the bubonic plague uh, back in the 13th and 14th century. It took a few more hundred years for the system to finally collapse, but it never recovered from the, from the shock uh, and the disruption, which in nowadays you would call disrupted supply chains and, and uh, inflations, which is what they had then too. That should give us pause about whether we are confronted with a threat to the economic system we live in and that we are not beginning to come up with a bevy of tools needed to confront a threat that, that big. And having now seen Mr. Senator Manchin shoot down the little modest effort that the Build Back Better had become, you are watching almost in slow motion the incapacity to cope that is becoming the number one theme of the economic system we're living in. All right. And uh, just just for the record, the Biden administration has been calling for the so-called TRIPS waivers for the for the for the third world to be able to make vaccines. The barrier here in the World Trade Organization has been Germany under Merkel. Now, there's a new, you know, uh, Otto. Uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Scholz. Scholz. Uh, yeah. Uh, you've got a new new prime minister. Uh, I, I don't recall, you know, he's only been in office for a week or two. I don't recall if he's made any public pronouncements about the TRIPS waivers. Uh, do you know? Because if he was to change his mind, if he was to change Germany's position, then uh, we could get that. You know, I was thinking about, for my op-ed for today, writing a piece that, you know, Omicron is God's way of saying you should have shared the patent. You know, you, you know punishing you for greedy pharma companies. Well, you know, European newspapers, and I, I, I'm in no position to make a judgment that's worth anything here, but in a lot of European newspapers, the argument is made that it is Pfizer and Moderna uh, with the collusion of the United States government uh, that is holding all of this back uh, because Pfizer wants to make more money before it does all of this stuff. I don't know. I mean, I can't val validate or verify uh, these things. But what, what I know is that in the long run, history won't be all that interested in who did or didn't do something. If the Germans or any country were the obstacle, then we're still left with why did not all of the other countries do the appropriate end run around the one or two that held back in the name of the human race, no. if not 
I'm with you. I think that has to do with uh, the WTO being, you know, like the European Union, a consensus-based organization. But um, I, I noticed that the the uh, uh, Goldman Sachs just cut our GDP forecast for this year. Are you seeing a an economic slowdown as a result of this, or do you think that because this virus is moving so fast? that it's going to burn through the country in just a matter of a few months and by the end of the year, by the end of next year, by the end of 2020, one year from now, we will be starting at least economically to get back to normal. The problem is you can't reason like that, Tom, because over the next six months, 12 months, there'll be another Omicron, perhaps, in all those parts of the world that still aren't vaccinated at all and that are therefore breeding grounds. And we now know that even with vaccine, you can get the disease again, which means that many more opportunities for yet other mutations. I think you're absolutely right to focus that Goldman Sachs does not want to have to make a prediction like that because, among other things, it's going to hurt them. And they're doing that because they feel they have to protect their clients in order to keep them. Uh, And so they're saying what can't be said by others in the hopes that it'll make the kind of difference that that, that, that their clients expect them to make. And I'm afraid they have a lot of information beyond what we already know to indicate that we are in for another shock and the only question is how long and how bad it'll be. Yeah, I, it makes perfect sense. Professor Wolf, thank you so much. It's great talking with you as always. You too, and best of the holidays to you. Thank you. Happy holidays to you too, sir. Tom Harvin here with you, pricking up your phone calls. Mark in San Francisco. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I hope you have a great holiday, you and your family. Thank you. Back at you, Mark. You know, I'm calling because I think we ought to start talking about Fox News as a threat to national security. They're dividing this country in half. They're aiding and abetting our enemies. They're basically, the misinformation is killing Americans. And and basically, uh, the the damage that they're doing to this country is, is, it's amazing that they're, what they're doing. And, you know, I think they're a national security threat. We should start calling them out for it. I don't disagree, Mark. In fact, I made that point in, a, in an op-ed last week. And by the way, Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, agrees with you. And it's like everywhere Murdoch brings his media. First it was Australia, and he flipped that whole country, which is very, very progressive. Flipped them right wing. I don't know if you caught the story. There was uh, in, the, in the national press, I think it was in the Financial Times, I read it over the weekend, that uh, Jacinda Ahern, the uh, prime minister of New Zealand, it was a little part of a larger interview that had to do with other things. But basically, they asked, you know, how is it that New Zealand is so progressive and you've got a consensus across your country? You're not torn apart right and left like Australia right next door is. And she said, because we have no Murdoch media here in New Zealand. So first he does it to Australia. Then he goes to the United Kingdom and does that and does it there and buys the Times of London and tears the United Kingdom apart. And then he moves to the United States and he starts Fox News and buys the New York Post and the Wall Street Street Journal and tears America apart. And, uh, you know, I think the damage that has been done to this country is inestimable. It is mind-boggling. And it should be a lesson to all of us about the importance of media and the importance of of controlling right-wing billionaires. Mark, thank you for that. Kevin, in Storm Lake, Iowa. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Uh, I just wanted to call, Tom. I've been, you know, I've been trying to figure out whether the uh, new voting law that they're proposing in Congress, the new Voting Rights Act, I don't know if it's under the John Lewis, but uh, whether they've, it sounds like they're trying to reinsert some of the pre-clearance provisions of the of the Voting Rights Act. That is in the, that is in the For the People Act. It is not okay. in the, which has been set aside. That the the okay. re, reinstating preclearance is not part, to the best of my knowledge. I, and I went through it over the weekend for this piece that I wrote today. I spent the whole well, the whole day yesterday digging into this thing. Yeah. I don't see it in the Freedom to Vote Act. I have not read all of the all of the the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, so I'm not certain. Yeah, but I don't think. And, so. I, and I, my understanding is that'd be pretty critical to stopping some of these you know these voting laws that yeah. they're. Oh, no, wait wait a second, Kevin. You know, it just dawned on me. One of the critiques that I saw of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which I'm a big advocate for, is that it is only calling for preclearance or or a modern variation on preclearance 
in some particular states, and it should apply to every state. Yeah. In the yeah, that's what I'm wondering about because that was—I always thought that was kind of a flaw. I understand the reasoning for it when it first began, but to, to reinstate them now, it just seems to me that all these states should be under those provisions yeah. because they're all passing laws that you know that 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 they weren't before, you know. But yeah, I'm with you. I but it's not—it's not, it's not going to be changed now, Kevin, because it's already passed the House. It's you know, it's it's in the Senate, oh. and it's either going to pass yeah. or it's not. Although, you know, they could, I suppose the Senate could alter it and send it back for reconciliation. And it would probably pass, you know, in, in a, um, reconciliation isn't the word for when, when the House and Senate get together and, and re-digest a piece of legislation. Oh, yeah, um, conference, conference. Yeah, conference, conference committee. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Kevin, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dan in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for taking my call. I'm calling today. I have a two-year-old toddler at home, which I'm sure you're aware. I know our government is aware. is too young for me to vaccinate. Right. Um, despite that, this same government, when it comes to the Congress, they're unfreezing my loans. They're letting my child tax credit expire. When it comes to this White House, uh, they have a COVID czar that's saying all unvaccinated people, my kid included, on TV is saying you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death. Uh, Ron Klain is on Twitter right now defending that language while parents of under fives are screaming at him how grotesque that is. Um, you I, know, think, I think the point, Dan, of that statement is that, you know, they're, they're speaking well, I under, to people no, who I are choosing and I to not be vaccinated. We have to put a lot of pressure on that. But, but the reality is, is that the dangers that all unvaccinated people face, my kid does as well. Yeah. And we're getting no guidance from the federal government. We're getting no messaging. We're getting no support. It's shocking how few people in media even mention when we talk about that unvaccinated group, that that includes every single kid under five years old. Omicron has much higher hospitalization rates for that group. Yep. We're hearing more and more about the long-term effects of long COVID. So we can't just say, oh, well, these kids don't show bad symptoms. They could get neurological damage. They could have heart or lung damage that is prolonged over time. And what's really crazy to me is that all of us young parents of very young kids in the millennial generation, we already had the lowest relative generational wealth in a century. Yep. And, you know, everybody in the Democratic Party, at least, ran every single election on the fact that we didn't even have $500 in the bank. I'm going to be on the hook for an extra $1,000 starting next year because of the inaction of this Congress and the fact that they're acting like we've reopened, even though my family and the millions of families like us don't have the privilege to reopen, don't have the privilege to vaccinate our kids. Um, You know, they've been milking what little savings my family had. We're not that well off, but we're better off than most people. So we're burning through the money we were going to spend on a house, which means we're not going to have any assets when this thing is all over. 
and can't get childcare right now and can't return to their careers because we did so much to protect the older Americans in this country. Now we're saddled with kids who are unimmunized. And I tell you, yeah. the entire political system, the entire Democratic Party, state reps, media, everybody wants to pretend like we don't exist, our kids don't exist. I've never felt so abandoned. I've never felt so betrayed. Frankly, when under 45-year-olds were supporting Bernie Sanders and saying that we feared Joe Biden, this was our greatest fear. And it is shocking to me. The guy just doesn't Dan, let's just, that he let's just specify a couple, uh, a couple pieces of reality here. First sure, of all, sure. you know, Pfizer was testing their vaccine on two to five-year-olds. I, I, you know, I understand your concerns. I, I spent the weekend with my one-year-old and three-year-old grandchildren. <laughs> I'm real yeah, aware of these issues. And Pfizer has been, has been running trials now for six months on two to five-year-olds on, on, the, on the vaccines. And what they announced last week, the Biden administration fully expected that last week or the week before that they would be announcing that we can drop the age to two years old. And instead, what Pfizer announced was that they weren't getting enough of an immune response from kids. And so now they're, they're starting um, phase two or three trials on a, on a booster for those kids that they tried out the one and two doses. So they're working on that. But that's not a political issue. That's a scientific issue. You know, I get your frustration. I share your frustration. I want my three-year-old well, grandson would, yeah. to be vaccinated. I, I'm totally, totally with you. I would only with say, the with only reason I put that in the political realm is just to emphasize these people know. When I call my senator, when I call my congressman, they know that every kid under five can't be vaccinated. Of course. And of yet course. they're telling me, I got to go out. I got to go back into the workforce. I got to bring this Omicron home and get my kid just so I can make enough money to pay off my loans just to make up for the money that we're going to lose on this child. I, I get credit. it, Dan. I and if you want to, if you all senators, yeah, uh, you know, sorry, I, I get it. You're 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 upset and I'm upset, too. I'm and scared. If, and, and, I'm scared, Tom. I'm I, so scared. Well, I'm yeah, I get that, too, Dan. And there have been times in my life when I was very close to where you're you know what you're talking about. Louise and I living in a trailer in the woods in New Hampshire early on in our marriage. But the political piece of this should have been solved with Build Back Better. It really should have been solved. And Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are eating at this. And I can't see this or say that this is a problem of, quote, the Democratic Party. It's a problem of a Senate. Oh, no, it's the Democratic caucus. It's yeah, a, no, it is a, it is a problem of a United States Senate where 40 senators who represent 24% of the U.S. population can prevent anything from happening with the oh, filibuster. Yeah. Well, and Joe Manchin, frankly, you know, Virginia right across the way has four times the population. We should only have one Virginia in this country. I'm, you know, or, or, or split New York State into two and split California into three yep. and Texas Cali into three. Into four, and, I mean, there's all kinds three, of things we can do. But the two. point is, Dan, 100%. that this isn't it isn't that a bunch of Democrats sat around and said, hey, let's figure out a way to screw millennials. It's that well, we've got a say, system that gives inordinate levels of power to right-wing billionaires and big corporations, and they are calling the tune for the entire Republican Party and for Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. But then where, but where is the, lo the student loan freeze element? Because they're unfreezing it. That's the White House. That's I know. Joe Biden. No, that, that is not. Is that they no, that is legislation. Well, you're, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right, Dan. Either, Joe Biden either. could do something about a piece of student loans. He could forgive. But thank a you piece. for putting me on the air, Tom. This you're welcome, Dan. You're the best. He could undo about. He could un. He could. He could fix about half of the student loans, just the ones that are federally made, only half of them, and he could. And he could grant a ten thousand dollar waiver on them. You know, I mean, he could do that, and I. I think he should. Dan, thank you for the call. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Donut Economics, brand new book by Kate Raworth, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And on page 21 in the uh, Who Wants to Be an Economist chapter, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, here they are. Whether you consider yourself an economic veteran or novice, now is the time to uncover the economic graffiti that lingers in all of our minds. And if you don't like what you find, scrub it out. Or better still, paint it over with new images that far better serve our needs and times. The rest of this book proposes seven ways to think like a 21st century economist. 
revealing for each of those seven ways the spurious image that has occupied our minds, how it has come to be so powerful, and the damaging influence it has had. The time for mere critique has passed, which is why the focus here is on creating new images that capture the essential principles to guide us now. The diagrams in this book aim to summarize that leap from old to new economic thinking. Taking together, they set out, quite literally, a new big picture for the 21st century economist. So here's a whirlwind tour of the ideas and images at the heart of donut economics. First, change the goal. For over 70 years, economics has been fixated on GDP, or national output, as its primary measure of progress. That fixation has been used to justify extreme inequalities of income and wealth, coupled with unprecedented destruction of the living world. For the 21st century, a far bigger goal is needed, meeting the human needs of every person within the means of our life-giving planet. And that goal is encapsulated in the concept of the donut. The challenge now is to create economies, local to global, that help to bring all of humanity into the donut's safe and just space. Instead of pursuing ever-increasing GDP, it's time to discover how to thrive in balance. Second, see the big picture. Mainstream economics depicts the whole economy with just one extremely limited image, the circular flow diagram. Its limitations have, furthermore, been used to reinforce a neoliberal narrative about the efficiency of the market, the incompetence of the state, the domesticity of the household, and the tragedy of the commons. It is time to draw the economy anew, embedding it within society and within nature and powered by the sun. This new depiction invites new narratives about the power of the market, the partnership of the state, the core role of the household, and the creativity of the commons. Third, nurture human nature. At the heart of 20th century economics stands the portrait of rational economic man. He has told us that we are self-interested, isolated, calculating, fixed in taste, and dominant over nature. And his portrait has shaped who we have become. But human nature is far richer than this. As early sketches of our new self-portrait reveal, we are social, interdependent, approximating, fluid in values, and dependent upon the living world. What's more, it is indeed possible to nurture human nature in ways that give us a far greater chance of getting into the donut's safe and just space. Fourth, get savvy with systems. The ironic crisscross of the market supply and demand curves is the first diagram that every economic student encounters. But it is rooted in misplaced 19th century metaphors of mechanical equilibrium. A far smarter starting point for understanding the economy's dynamism is systems thinking, summed up by a simple pair of feedback loops. Putting such dynamics at the heart of economics opens up many new insights, from the boom and bust of financial markets to the self-reinforcing nature of economic inequality and the tipping points of climate change. It's time to stop searching for the economy's elusive control levers and start rewarding it as an ever-evolving complex system. Fifth, designed to distribute. In the 20th century, one simple curve, the Kuznets curve, whispered a powerful message on inequality. It has to get worse before it can get better, and growth will eventually get it, make it up, or even it up. But inequality, it turns out, is not an economic necessity. It is a design failure. 21st century economists will recognize that there are many ways to design economies to be far more distributive of the value that they generate, an idea best represented as a network of flows. It means that going beyond redistributing income to exploring ways to redistributing wealth, particularly the wealth that lies in controlling land, enterprise, technology, knowledge, and the power to create money. Sixth, create to regenerate. Economic theory has long portrayed a clean environment as a luxury good, affordable only for the well-off. This view was reinforced by the environmental Kuznets curve, which once again whispered that pollution has to get worse before it can get better and growth will eventually clean it up. But there is no such law. Ecological degradation is simply the result of degenerative industrial design. This century needs economic thinking that unleashes regenerative design in order to create a circular, not linear, economy and to restore humans as full participants to Earth's cyclical processes of life. Seventh, be agnostic about growth. One diagram in economic theory is so dangerous that it's actually never drawn, the long-term path of GDP growth. Mainstream economics views endless economic growth as a must, but nothing in nature grows forever, and the attempt to buck that trend is raising tough questions 
in high-income but low-growth countries. The book, Donut Economics. Robert in Naples, Florida. Hey, Robert, it says you disagree with me about what? No, what it is is that you brought up the issue about in the villages, the illegal voting. Uh, I, I consider that a little bit of a stretch, being that I have a place in the state of New York besides being a resident of Florida. And, no, it's and not illegal to be vote. registered in multiple states. Oh, oh, it's just illegal to vote in multiple states, which slow is what down, they did. Slow down, slow, slow down but, it, but I would be jeopardizing my tax basis if I was caught, which would be very severely financially damaging, but but irrespective. I'll go along with that. Why don't we agree then we take both the places that one side said that there was a lot of fraudulent voting and the other side, and why don't we do a complete forensic check that the people in this country that are alive and of sound mind and residents of the country are really the ones that voted? Because we've already done it, Robert. What's wrong it's, with it's, it's been, it has already been done. Georgia, they counted literally every single vote three times by hand. They counted the same vote three times. I asked you about a forensic that the people that really That's voted. That's what is a forensic audit, Robert. Voting right. Yeah, Robert, I, I, you're, I, feel you're like not, I feel like I'm talking to a wall. Alfredo in Mountain View, California. Hey, Alfredo, what's up? Yeah, Tom, thank you for taking my call. I have two questions for you. One is, instead of adding more judges to the Supreme Court, what about reducing the amount of judges in the Supreme Court so there is a more balanced Supreme Court? And my other question is... I think the uh, whole point of adding judges was to create a more balanced Supreme Court, because right now you've got, you know, three judges. Gorsuch shouldn't be on the court. He should have been Merrick Garland. He should have been a uh, an Obama appointee because, you know, Mitch McConnell basically broke the Constitution for a whole year. Beer bong Biff should not be on the court because Trump blackmailed Anthony Kennedy to get off the court. And uh, frankly, our handmaid tale lady, Annie Coney Barrett, should not be on the court because Ruth Bader Ginsburg, her body wasn't even in the ground at the time that, you know, and this was after after Trump was uh, un- was lost the election. I mean, typically those those cases, those, you know, actually do go into the next one. So, you know, it's, it's just cleaning it up. Well, I agree with you there, but uh, don't you think it will be perhaps, maybe I'm wrong, easier to, to reduce, let's say, remove three of those conservative no. judges? Whatever it is, whatever you're talking about, Alfredo, because Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution specifically says that the Congress can regulate the, the court. Now, there's a Congress gets to decide how many members of the court there are. Passing an expansion of the court or passing a reduction of the size of the court would be equally problematic. And reducing the size of the court would actually jam up the whole court system even worse than it is right now. We have a shortage of federal judges across the country. We should actually have more federal districts and we should have more members of the U.S. Supreme Court. And because each one of the federal districts has a member of the Supreme Court who is the titular head of it, you know, if we had more districts, we would have to have more members of the court or vice versa. And I think that that's the way to do it. Alfredo, thanks for the call. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Let's see here. Rob in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Rob, what's up? 
Hey, the one thing I wanted to say is that you had an earlier caller saying, well, we should verify all the people who are registered. Now, he's probably assuming that there's fake registrations being counted as votes, which I don't believe. But there's- Republicans being who they are, I think they're setting up for chaos because the whole audit we had here in Arizona with the ninjas, they basically, under Baranovich, you know, our attorney general, Baranovich, he basically let the biggest cybersecurity on election in the largest uh, county, Maricopa, happen right under his nose. He, they stole every ballot, every signature, every phone number um, to our county, the, the largest county, Maricopa. Right. And you can't tell me that they might not try to use that later. That could be just something as uh, just trying to target people, you know, for vote. Oh, they've been using it uh, right along, Rob. They're going door to door, banging on people's doors and say, we want to just verify that you voted for Trump or or Biden. Right. I mean, mean, you know, people are calling the police because of this. Well, what worries me more is they might just try to create chaos. Oh, they, they, they will registering those those names and, and, and numbers in other databases or try to register and just say, look, see how much fraud there is. Now, I know, you know, everything gets caught. Nobody has tried anything. has gotten caught every time uh, Republicans lose an election. They try to audit and they find nothing every time. There are checks and balances in place. They don't know that. And that's the problem with dealing with people who are basically foolish. They never know when they're wrong. And yeah. I just fear that they're so, going to use this and this data in some way to just say, to start crying, uh, you know, the, the election's a fraud again and to try and disrupt things. Now, I guess in the next election, if they delayed things, that would help Democrats out, because if you don't certify things, we still stay in power. Right. But uh, I, I just don't put it past them to try something stupid uh, just to create more chaos, because it just seems to be all they have going for them right now is uh you know, uh, I agree, Rob, and and not just in Arizona, by the way. And this is why I think it's so important to pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and get this stuff done. You know, just out, oh, no, outlaw I, I, the interference in elections like the Republicans are, are planning to do. Right. And for Manchin to come in and say he doesn't he thinks that it should be a bipartisan thing. They're not partisan. You know, so he's teaming up. You had said that he might switch parties, uh, you know, if, if well, he, he may have vote. Lisa Murkowski on voting rights. She has publicly said that she's in favor of passing voting rights legislation and that she yeah, would consider good, but- an amendment, you know, a, a change to the uh, to the uh, uh, Senate rules, you know, the filibuster rule to do that. And so if cinema tries to be the holdout and Manchin's willing to go along with voter rights and he can bring Lisa Murkowski in and 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 possibly even, uh, you know, the senator from Maine, uh, it's possible. Yeah. And to me, that's more important than anything else going on right now, because if we lose the election edge over bias in the system, then it's going to be really hard to recover. Yeah. Because, you know, all the uh, gerrymandering, you know, we elect our senators right now. That's gerrymander free. You know, each state just selects two. But Manchin is the example of why you don't need the gerrymander anymore, because he represents 1.7 million people in West Virginia. And somehow he's blocking all sorts of legislation for the rest of this country. Right. So yeah. it's already built in. We don't need a gerrymandering. Sorry, not gerrymandering, but the. Uh, yeah, and not only that, he's a guy who was elected by only 400,000 people. So, yeah. Rob, thank you for the call. Uh, yeah, we need, we need election legislation now. Robert in Minneapolis. Hey, Robert, thanks for watching us on Free Speech. What's up? Oh, thanks, Tom. I talked with you before. I'm the kind of the GMO guy. But anyway, this is about the COVID thing. Hmm? Okay. My son had one kind of a... COVID shot, and he got them, and then he went and got a jab. He works at a medical company, and then he has to get antibiotics. And if you're in the donut hole, you got to pay for it out of your pocket. Oh, and for the pharmaceuticals under Obamacare. Pharmaceutical yeah, okay. Got now, it. they don't, the, the notification should be sent in right away so they keep results on, you know, they're trying to keep results on, on what the vaccines do to people and how many reactions they have and stuff. Right. And so they're trying to keep tabs. But they make it almost impossible to do that. They send them in another methods, and he had to pay a copay on this. And and me, I, I go in the donut hole uh, where I have to pay the full amount. So I, I, if I didn't have enough money, I would not be even the, the uh, afford an antibiotic to treat this uh, uh, reaction to the vaccine. Well, wait a minute. Um, Antibiotics don't treat vaccine reactions. 
Vaccine reactions yes, are typically. They That's what they gave him. That's are, are, what they gave him the antibiotic. Yeah, well, if they gave him an yeah. antibiotic, he's not reacting to the vaccine. He's reacting to a bacteria. That's probably it. But, so uh, it's got nothing to do with his having gotten a shot. It's got to well, do with him, him no, having a bacterial infection. But well, I get it that there is this donut hole. And, you know, if he's on Obamacare, he's, he's going to have to pay it. And I think it's terrible. And we need to close the donut hole. Uh, to, you know, totally with you on all those things. And, well, uh, you know, yeah. So thank you, Robert. Paul in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to talk about uh, Build Back Better. I guess the concept that people need to understand we need a bigger government because we have a bigger world. We have a $20 trillion annual economy just in the United States. Uh, China will soon have a $20 trillion annual economy. Right, they hit $18 trillion last year. We're integrated with one another very tightly. When we deindustrialized America, we industrialized China. They make most of the stuff in the world. You can't even find a bicycle for a kid manufactured in the United States anymore. 95% of all the bicycles that are in stores are imported, whether they're from China or Vietnam. They're just not made here anymore. So what's your point? The scale of our economy is so huge that to spend one or two trillion dollars is a drop in the bucket. We need on an annual basis to be continually investing well over a trillion dollars just so the metal in our bridges and buildings don't rust, the concrete doesn't disintegrate under acid rain. Oh, the, the Society of Engineers has said we're, we're at a $4 trillion, at least, uh, infrastructure deficit. This is a civilizational scale issue. This is beyond the nation state. This is beyond the political parties, the pendulum of the right or the left. This is civilizational collapse. We will not have enough water. We will not have enough food. We will not have enough energy. We will not have enough anything. All right, so and you're making the argument that Build Back Better is essential. Build Back Better is essential, and it's just the beginning. We'll be passing $5 trillion bills on our knees within five years, yeah. on our knees, begging to rebuild what we need just to have I water agree. come out of our taps. I agree. I agree. And Joe Manchin and all these other people will will be swept away we will have a civilizational challenge right-wing strongmen will be swept away by the people who simply want to have water and a refrigerator with some kind of palatable food yeah yeah um, I, you know paul I, you know it you know I, it. I i absolutely do and and you know you're being cassandra here i'm you know i'm with you you are right and you are being ignored by and large and you're absolutely right that as things get worse, I mean, we just saw a preview of this in Kentucky with these tornadoes. As things get worse, they're, you know, they're, people are going to start freaking well, we, out. We, well, a few weeks before that, Philadelphia was flooded. We have, we have what's called the Vine Street Expressway, Interstate 676. It goes, cuts through Center City. It's like a, a, a concrete canyon, like five stories deep. And the cars pour through there from the Schuylkill River to the Delaware uh, river, and that's what connects us to South Jersey, to Western Pennsylvania, North Jersey, and the turnpikes up to New York City. It was completely filled with water. It looked wow. like a canal. Wow. You can see pictures of it just a, a month ago. Yeah. They had Tom, you you wouldn't believe it. No one ever saw anything like this in our lifetimes. The the changes that we need to make are going to be so vast the scale people do not understand the scale we need a big government because we have a big population of almost 400 million people yeah. we're going to be the size of china in the 1950s in our lifetime yeah i think i think china was way over 400 million people but but yes uh, paul and and basically what we're what we're all living on is infrastructure that was built between 1890 and 1950 and, you know, which is just crazy. Paul, thank you. Thank you. Very well said. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. Mark in Seattle. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? Oh, Tom, I got a story for you here. Uh, you had Richard Wolf on two weeks ago talking about corporate debt. Mm-hmm. 
that's my expertise. All right. Corporate debt is raised through selling corporate bonds. Right. And the corporate debt is now $11 trillion. 50% of that is used for stock buybacks and the rest for dividends. It's been a trillion a year for six years they've been taking on. Most is in investment-grade corporate bonds. And 50% of the investment grade are in the lowest level, the triple Bs, BBBs. Right. Three years ago, many Wall Street firms felt that 35% should be rated then as junk. Okay, when, when 50% uh, of investment grade drop into junk and interest rates have to be rolled over, and that has to be done next year, there, and then we go into a financial crisis caused by the stock market going down, which I believe is starting right now. A crisis, uh, the corporate yearly interest payments, not the $200 billion now that the Federal Reserve's low rates have allowed, but $1.2 trillion as the investment-grade corporate bonds drop into junk status. In 2008, junk yielded 24%, not the 5% that yields now. And the investment-grade yields 2% now. It'll yield half of it 24%. So now that so if when we go into this next financial crisis you're going to see corporations owing 1.2 trillion not the 200 billion a year now that they're having all right now a lot of this can be seen on the So Mark PBS forgive the interruption show. but the, the clock is coming on us. Um, are you saying that I, basically the corporate bonds are th going to be this generation's version of the housing disaster in 2008? That's correct. Okay. And the Frontline Show, The Power of the Fed, says this, talks about a lot of what I just told you. You can YouTube it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, and they're not liquid. They're not liquid. Oh, after absolutely. The, after the financial crisis, the regulations that were put in um, told banks to uh, hold cash against any tradable assets. Mm -hmm. And those corporate bonds were, they used to be dealers. Now they're no longer dealers because they don't want to uh, be holding those things and have cash be put up against it. They want to use their cash for gambling. And the banks are going to have to be bailed out as well. This is the biggest story. You can get me on again at further detail if you like. Mark, uh, feel free to send me details on Twitter and, and we can connect. Thank you very right. much for that. It's good talking to you. David in Spotswood, New Jersey. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hey, if um, if Biden wanted to get reelected, all he'd have to do is lift the embargo on Venezuela and gas prices would drop. You think? That's right. I, I didn't. Well, they have the second. They have the second largest oil reserves. I know, but are they producing? I thought. I thought that. I thought. Oil. Yeah, I got that. But it's it's really dirty oil. It's there's only one refinery in the United States that can process it. I believe it's owned by Coke Industries. I may be wrong. It, it certainly was at one time, I'm pretty sure. And But that one refinery is what they built the pipeline from Canada to go to so it could deal with coal tar. So I'm not even sure that we could process Venezuelan oil any longer. Well, it, it, would, it wouldn't hurt. I mean, um, well, it would, it it would affect the world prices. It would also send a signal to the markets. I'm not for it because it's dirty oil and it's not great for climate change. Right. But I'm just saying there is no reason for that embargo on Venezuela. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I would say, and it's, and it's doing terrible damage to the Venezuelan people. The other one that I would say is get Iran back into the JPOC, back into the, the Iran nuclear deal so that you know we can lift the embargo on Iranian oil too. I mean, it was an embargo on Iranian oil, or actually it was the, f the failure of Iran to ship oil when the Shah of Iran fell in 1979 that caused that second big goose in, uh, in oil prices that boosted inflation in 79 that hurt Jimmy Carter so bad in the 1980 election. And, uh, you know, I mean, inflation was running at 10% in the first year of the Reagan administration. And that was because Iran's oil was offline because of the Iranian revolution, because the students had taken over and, uh, and shut down the oil, the, you know, the oil exports. And uh, the price of oil just went through the roof. So Iran, Venezuela, that's a good point, David. It's a good point. I don't, I, you know, I, I, the politics of it, um, you know, he would be seen as embracing... Listen, 
embargo would also bring Iran to the table more. I, I think in both cases, really yeah. There, I don't believe, David, that there has ever been a time in history when an embargo has caused a government to change its policies. It certainly didn't work with Cuba. In fact, if anything, it made them stronger. David, thank you for the call. Thought-provoking. I appreciate it. see here ike in chinese camp california hey ike what's up hey tom first time caller a little bit nervous but i'll get through it <laughs> nice to hear from you ike what's on your mind yeah i, I want to talk about uh, the president having the ability to handle the military to put solar panels on schools uh, i think the military has said that this is the, the biggest threat to our country is uh, global warming and I think that this would be a thing that he could do, teach these people in the military how to do the electrical work that it takes to put up solar panels by, and have them put it on schools, which would help schools, and, and uh, teach many people in the military that when they leave, they would have a job to go to to do this stuff. Also, that they could do also with uh, wind power. Yeah. Is that possible? I think it's it's very possible, Ike, and, and you'll recall part of Build Back Better was uh, Joe Biden electrifying the entire fleet of federal vehicles. You know, that's a huge step forward. You also have federal buildings all over the United States that could have solar panels put on them. I mean, there's a lot that could be done. The problem that we have is that uh, because the Supreme Court legalized the bribery of politicians, the entire Republican Party has sold itself out to, to a bunch of right-wing petrobillionaires and a a handful of industries, principally pharmaceutical, insurance, oil, and banking, and a a large handful of Democrats have done the same thing. They've said, oh, sure, yeah, we'll take your money, yes. You know, and they're fighting any kind of forward progress on this. And and I lay all of this, or most of this, at the feet of the United States Supreme Court for legalizing political bribery in the United States. It's absolutely insane. But you're, you're onto something, Ike, and, and it's a good one, and I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Alan in Bakersfield, California. Hey, Alan, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. First-time caller. I had an idea that uh, possibly, well, it seems so obvious to me that perhaps it's already been talked about, but uh, I have an air filter, and every year I replace the filters. Mm-hmm. Suppose there is a, uh, a someone could come up with a dry chemical that could be included in these filters that would draw CO2 out of the atmosphere as it goes through the filtration. That would be a little drop in a large ocean, but wouldn't hurt. Yeah. To the best of my uh, knowledge, there's there's no such technology. Well, I mean, there is such a technology. They're using it for carbon capture, but but it's uh, you know relatively inefficient. But it's an interesting idea, Alan, and, and particularly if after the, that carbon dioxide was captured, you know, if it was it turned into a stone or if it could be turned into a nutrient for plants or something, at least it could be recycled. Interesting idea. Alan, thank you. Today we're reading from the brand new third edition, uh, the 2018 edition of The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight by me, the subtitle of Fate of the World and What We Can Do Before It's Too Late. This is from the chapter Climate Changes, which I did a huge update on over the last couple of years. Imagine you and your family had a time machine large enough to live in no matter what era you arrived in. Let's imagine that you dial your time machine back to 250 million years ago when you step out onto a fern-covered field somewhere thousands of miles away from what is today Siberia. Unbeknownst to you, the lava flow has begun in the distance. As you're setting up your new home, you might notice a reddening of the sky at sunrise and sunset, but it wouldn't seem like anything dramatic was going on anywhere in the environment. Over the next few years and decades, you may notice that the weather is growing more intense, the seasonal extremes more noticeable. Still, you'd have no way of knowing that the planet was moving toward a point that would lead to the death of almost everything. Over the years, as you become an old man or woman, your children might notice that the larger plants, what today would be our trees, seem to be dying faster than normal from what appears to be some sort of blight or fungus. It's as if the plant's immune systems have been compromised. Long after you're dead, your grandchildren might begin to notice that the rains are not coming the way they used to, and when they do, the storms are wildly more ferocious. The results are either floods or droughts. 
Insects and small animal populations are less evident. The air is becoming corrosive. It's getting harder to breathe. The sunrises and sunsets are becoming more spectacular with radiant colors of light cast across the sky. By the time your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren are born, the lava flows may be settling down, but the tipping point has been passed. Although it was a slow process, it was an inexorable one. The world, over thousands of years, has warmed to the degree where all of the abundant life your descendants could see around themselves was doomed. The lava flow in Siberia, by throwing into the atmosphere a variety of greenhouse gases, had been steadily pushing up the temperature of the Earth. While many of these gases were themselves toxic, it would be their combined greenhouse effects, along with those of the multiplying carbon dioxide levels, that would take down the planet. But you would only know that in retrospect, when pretty much everything was dead. Fast forward to today. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in the atmosphere trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000 years of human history. We're on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a much different place from the one currently cradling us, or even the one in which modern humans evolved. The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, agricultural collapse, they're all taking place now. One recent July afternoon, we had an electrical storm here in central Vermont that was so severe it took out two of my computers and blew circuit breakers throughout the house. Our home wasn't unique. Many families lost most or all of their electrical appliances. Larry, a fellow we'd hired to do some repair work on our half-mile-long driveway, stood atop a hill with me a week after the storm and told me how his wife had been thrown across the room from an electrical shock she received touching their screen door during the storm. It's not normal weather here, he said. It used to be that Vermont weather was famous for always changing, always unpredictable, but the last few years have been like nothing before. A lot of people agree with Larry. Extreme weather events like the 14-year drought that savaged Australia starting in 1995 and the freezing destruction of Superstorm Standy are on the rise. Between 2011 and 2013, the U.S. suffered 32 extreme weather events, each wreaking at least a billion dollars in damage. 2012, the year of Superstorm Sandy, was the second costliest year on record, with $110 billion in damages. During the 2017 hurricane season, Hurricane Harvey appeared and quickly developed into a thousand-year event, dumping 20 inches of rain over nearly 29,000 square miles surrounding the Houston metropolitan area flooding an area the size of New Jersey. Rebuilding from Hurricane Harvey alone could cost up to $180 billion in damages, making it the costliest storm in U.S. history. But how long until the next superstorm? The year 2016 set new records as the hottest year in recorded history, with average global temperatures of 1.3 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Along with the heat waves, flooding and drought accompanying this temperature increase are melting polar ice caps and in turn rising sea levels. The planet's sea level has risen an average of eight inches since 1880, with dramatic gains in the last half of the 20th century. In the 50 years since 1963, the ocean rose two and a half inches in Los Angeles, six inches in Boston, and 12 and a half inches in Galveston, Texas. The polar ice caps are in an unprecedented state of decline, with sea ice in Antarctica and the Arctic measuring at 1.48 million square miles less than the average 1981 through 2010 average. At the end of 2016, the Arctic saw temperatures 36 degrees Fahrenheit above average. When the mathematics and physics become as compelling as they are now, big business gets alarmed. In November of 2012, the international accounting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers issued a rather dire warning for the future of business on the planet. After all, if the human race has been reduced to living in caves or is extinct, nobody's going to buy or sell anything. In a news release sent out internationally entitled, Businesses as Usual is Not an Option, as current rates of emission reduction point to two degrees of warming, Jonathan Grant, Director of Sustainability and Climate Change, said this, the new reality is a much more challenging future in terms of planning, financing, and predictability. Even doubling our current annual rates of decarbonization globally every year to 2050 would still lead to six degrees Celsius, making government's ambitions to limit warming to two degrees appear highly unrealistic. The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight by Tom Hartman. Kathy in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, a happy, happy Mary Mary to Thank you. Thank you, back at you. <laughs> I, uh, I just want to talk a bit. I'll try to be as brief as possible. I am delighted that the United Mine Workers of America came out yesterday with a very strong statement 
telling Manchin that they want him to reconsider his position on Build Back Better. And the reason this is important is because they have a very long and productive relationship. Last year, the UMWA made him an honorary member. Oh, they've been one of the the major unions to support Joe Manchin through his entire career. Through his entire career. And this is what he said at the time. And this is just last year. He said, standing alongside the UMWA members while they fought tooth and nail to secure the pension and health care benefits they rightly earned has been one of the greatest honors of my life. So now they're putting moves on him. Uh, Cecil uh, Roberts, I believe his last name is, said he was very disappointed, sent a very strong message. And it's not just that Build Back Better does have some very good protections for coal miners, especially those that are going to be displaced by clean energy, but also that they really have their hair on fire about all the union busting that's going on. And Build Back Better had some strong language about that to impose heavy penalties on uh, companies that are you know, busting unions, denying workers the ability yep. to unionize, which is a total violation of the 1935 National Labor Relations. So to me, this is just one example of what unions do that not only impact them, but have a ripple effect, uh, uh, benefit for workers throughout the country. And I just want people to remember that. Thank you, Kathy. (laughs) That was a brilliant point, and you said it so well and so succinctly. uh, I couldn't have done better. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. Happy holidays to you and yours. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.